When my wife, Allison, and I were doing premarital counseling, we talked with a couple named Justin and Jennifer Gerhardt. Justin was the preacher up at Round Rock Church of Christ uh, for 10 years, and Justin and Jennifer are great friends. They told us a rule that they have for their family. Uh, If someone in the Gerhardt family apologizes and says, I am sorry, you are not allowed to say in response, it's okay, or it's fine, or no worries, or it's no big deal. If you're going to forgive, you have to say the three words, I forgive you. I actually texted Justin and Jennifer this week because I wanted to know the origin story of this rule, and they texted, texted me back immediately. Justin said, one time we were arguing, Jennifer apologized, and I said, It was fine, but it wasn't fine. I said it was fine to move the evening along with the understanding that I would continue to be angry and pouty until I got over it. He said that he stopped after a minute and said, you know what, Jennifer, I actually don't mean that. It's not fine. They talked about it and talked about it and decided to make a sacred rule. The the words I'm sorry have to be spoken when you mean it, And when those sacred words are spoken, they demand an equally sacred response. I forgive you. Jennifer then messaged the group and said, Mitch, just so you have the right picture, Justin was very good at pouting. (laughs) And then she texted, I'm sorry, and then he texted back, I forgive you. So I I got to watch the rule in practice. I love this forgiveness rule because the only way You can understand what forgiveness really is, is if you know both what sin is and what love is. True forgiveness never downplays the wrong done. This is why it's not okay to say it's fine or it's okay, because those things aren't true. It's not okay to lie. It's not okay to be cruel. It's not okay to be manipulative. And so true forgiveness says what you did is not okay. It doesn't downplay sin. But forgiveness is loving because it doesn't let you harbor grudges. When you say just it's okay, you still get permission to hold on to the hate. My parents have told me that when I was little, I perfected something called the Mitch Sigh. They would do something that I didn't like, and instead of saying that my feelings were hurt, I would just look at them and go, (sighs) and then I would droop down and be devastated for the rest of the day. They're actually here this morning, so you can verify with them about the Mitch sigh. I perfected it over the years. This is so important to talk about in this series on the Lord's Prayer, because we're preaching through line after line, and this morning we're looking at this Very important line in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. This line will never make sense unless you know what God's love is and what sin really is. I think in the past few decades, churches have shied away from talking about sin. And I think there was a a good motivation and desire behind that. We wanted to move away from the steady diet of hellfire and brimstone sermons and move towards grace. But in the process, I think we swung too far to the other side of the pendulum. And here's the thing, we can't 
ignore sin because it's God's diagnosis of our human condition. He tells us that we're not okay. We do need grace. So I'm going to talk this morning about sin and God's love. And I think as we talk about it, you'll hear the good news in this line. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. But to see what sin really is, I think we've got to go back to that first reading of Scripture from Exodus chapter 32. If you have a a Bible with you, um, if you have the Bible app on your phone, go to Exodus chapter 32. We're going to be starting in verse 1. If you don't know, the, the, the name Exodus just means departure. The story of the Exodus is the departure of the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. God brings them out of slavery, leads them through the the Red Sea on dry ground, and leads them all the way to Mount Sinai. At Mount Sinai, they receive the Torah, which is the law of God. It's a set of commands given by God to teach his people how to be holy, how to be set apart from the other nations. Now, if you jump into the story of the Exodus at the giving of the Torah, you might think, The only thing God cares about is making up these rules with no rhyme or reason. But that that couldn't be further from the truth. This is a God who clearly wants this people to be free. So these laws are, are, are not arbitrary rules or lines that God makes because if you cross them, he doesn't want you to have fun. God wants to give these rules as gifts to his people to live a life of true freedom and goodness. The only problem is that God gives these rules to Moses over the span of 40 days. Meanwhile, the Israelites are at the bottom of Mount Sinai getting very impatient. We're going to start in verse 1 of Exodus. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron, that's Moses' brother, that's going to be the future high priest of Israel, which is really ironic in light of what he's about to do. And they say to Aaron, come, make us gods. Now, they aren't saying make us gods, they're saying make us statues, idols, representations of gods who will go before us. Because this fellow Moses, who did bring us up out of Egypt... Well, we don't know what's happened to him. He's been gone for so long. He's up Mount Sinai. He's in all of these dark clouds. We don't know where he is. We want to see the gods leading us before us. Now, this is kind of a foreign thing for us. We can't really imagine creating statues uh, that represent God. but, But think about their decision for a second. This statue is a representation of an Egyptian god. This is a God from the nation that enslaved them. So whatever definition of sin you have, it has to include slavery. Jesus himself says everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And this idolatry that they perform, it it leads to more and more sins. You can see this in the following verses. The next day, the people rose early after Aaron had made the, the golden calf and sacrificed burnt offerings to it. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry, right? So they don't even just commit idolatry. They gorge themselves on food. They throw off all of God's rules. They're going to do whatever they want. When Moses later comes down from the mountain, Aaron doesn't own up to what he did. He actually shifts the blame from himself to the people. He says, Moses, you know how prone these people are to evil. Moses, we've got to meet them halfway this This golden calf is what they want. 
And then he lies to his brother with my favorite lie in the Bible. They gave me the gold, I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It was magic, Moses. You should have been there. You see what Aaron is doing? He's downplaying this sin. It's not that big of a deal. But God's response is not Aaron's response. God says to Moses, after they commit this idolatry, he says, leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Moses, I will then make you into a great nation. When we read stories in the Old Testament like this, we probably think that God is being cruel. He's being overly harsh. But I think that probably means we still don't fully grasp what this sin really is. This is not a minor mistake. This is not a slip-up. This is not something you say oops about. This sin is directly against God, and it ends up in death. We can't act like sin is anything less than what it is. We can't do what Aaron does and downplay it. If you've ever been treated with cruelty, if you've ever knowingly hurt someone just because you wanted to, you know the damage that sin really does. God's reaction to sin is not over the top or cruel. He tells Moses what should happen. But the beauty of this story is that Moses doesn't throw up his hands and say, well, God has said so, and now, now there's no hope. There's no conversation. I can't appeal to God. Instead, what he does is seek the favor of the Lord his God for the sake of the people. See, this is the amazing, amazing thing about the God of Abraham and Moses. He's always been a God who relents, who forgives, who shows mercy to the repentant. And that's exactly what God does. We read, the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he had threatened. I love that verse so much. We don't have to wait till the New Testament to see God forgive people. The God of the New Testament and Old Testament are the same God who has always been listening to our cries for forgiveness. One of my favorite Ang Anglican prayers of all time says it this way, O oh God, whose glory it is, always to have mercy. Be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways. You see, already in the Old Testament, with this ultimate sin of idolatry, God doesn't say it's okay. He doesn't downplay it. He knows sin for what it is, but Moses intercedes and God forgives. And yet, there is something that happens in the New Testament that demonstrates God's love in a whole new way, at a whole new level. Instead of waiting for a man like Moses to intercede, God himself becomes a man whose entire life is offered up for the forgiveness of our sins. That's the most beautiful part of this Lord's prayer that he gives us. He has already achieved the very thing he tells us to request. And if you look at Jesus' life from start to finish, it's all about forgiveness. One of his first miracles in the Gospel of Mark happens when he meets a paralyzed man. The paralyzed man's four friends lower him through a roof that Jesus is in. And, and Jesus actually doesn't initially heal this paralyzed man. At first, he doesn't say, get up and walk. Instead, he declares something far more important. Son, 
your sins are forgiven. If you grew up in church, you might be so used to this message. You've heard this before, but stop for a second and think about what Jesus is saying here. He is a Jewish rabbi speaking in front of Jews saying, I have the power and authority to forgive this man's sins, not just the ones he does to me, but all the sins in his life. The first reaction of some of the Jews present is, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they are right to respond that way because the only basis for Jesus to say these words is if he is God in the flesh. And because he is, he has the authority to do this. In his ministry, some of his first responses to people are not to, to heal all of their wounds or sickness. He, often his first word is, I forgive you. Some of Christ's last words are also words of forgiveness. While he is being crucified, what does he think to say? But, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Can you believe that? I mean, do you know what love is? This is true divine love for you. I mean, slow down for a second and savor that. Just look at these words. Don't look at me. Look at these words. Have you ever done something in your life and had no idea the mess you were making? Jesus forgives those sins. I mean, imagine for a second what you would do without the truth of those words applied to you. What if the whole world could have every email or text you've ever sent? Just think about that for a second. Did anybody shift in their seat a little bit? What if everything you did as a teenager or in your 20s was on film and posted that on YouTube right now? I heard someone chuckle from the front. What if the whole world could have a printout of every bank statement with every purchase you've ever made? Would you feel the slightest bit of concern? What are people going to think of me? This is the most beautiful thing you could ever imagine in your life. All the words and all the deeds you're ashamed of are forgiven. All the envy and hatred and self-pity and pride in your heart, that can be forgiven. All the times you've been cruel or petty to someone, forgiven. When you refuse to serve someone because basically it was an inconvenience, forgiven. Every shortcut you've taken, every rumor you've spread, every precious second of wasted time, all forgiven. You can be forgiven by Jesus and only by Jesus. My bet is that a lot of people in this morning at some point have struggled with shame in their lives about something you've done. Don't take your shame to someone expecting something they can't offer you. I believe therapy can be really good, but a therapist cannot forgive your sins. Exercise is really good for the body, but workouts cannot heal your soul. Good deeds can do a lot of good, 
but they can't outweigh the evils we've done. Being a nice person is way better than being a jerk, but no amount of niceness can ever wipe away all of our sins. Only Jesus, only his grace, only his forgiveness can actually heal and cover our shame. Nothing else can. I promise that I haven't forgotten the last part of the prayer. We pray each and every Sunday, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So far we've heard the good news of grace, but it's not cheap grace. This part of the prayer is the scary part. A lot of us carry around a lot of bitterness and grudges, a long list of wrongs committed against us. And, and we pray, we have the audacity to, to pray to God, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Turns out Jesus gives us a prayer that doesn't let us off the hook. He tells a parable in the Gospel of Matthew that puts us on the right track. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. For all my Bible nerds in here, the original says, a myriad of talents. A talent was a currency that was 6,000 days of pay. Over 16 years of wages, and he owes a myriad of those. 10,000 times that. He owes 160,000 years of wages. So, he was not able to pay. Huge shocker. So the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all he had must be sold to repay the debt. The servant fell on his knees before him and says, be patient with me and I will pay back everything. Do you hear how ludicrous that is? No, no, no. You don't, you don't have time to forgive or pay back everything. But this is the most amazing thing. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Listen to what the king does not say. He doesn't say, okay, well, I expect you to return in one year's time with 10,000 bags of gold. That's never going to happen. Instead, the king cancels the debt back to zero and lets him go free. And it is a beautiful story at first. But it's not the end of the story because that servant whose debt is canceled leaves and finds another servant who owes him a very tiny debt. That fellow servant falls to his knees and begs the first servant, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? The same exact words as the first servant. But that first servant refuses. Instead, he goes off and has the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And the king hears about what this merciless servant has done. And he says, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I have had on you? In anger... The master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. That's the end of the parable. And then Jesus ends it with these words. If this doesn't wake you up on Sunday morning, I don't know what will. He says, this is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. 
Jesus puts the highest stakes possible on us forgiving those who sin against us. This line in the Lord's Prayer is the only one that gets commentary by Jesus. He says after the Lord's Prayer, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. Look at this last line. If you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That's a wake-up call. I mean, what grudges are we holding on to? What record of wrongs do we have stored up in our minds? Because Jesus says, if you've been forgiven, you must forgive those who sinned against you. Anytime that I think about forgiveness, I think about one young man in particular. On September 6, 2018, there was a student who graduated from Harding University who was sitting in his apartment in Dallas. His name was Botham Jean. He was shot and killed by an off-duty parole officer named Amber Geiger. And at Geiger's sentencing, Botham's brother, Brant Jean, spoke. He said these words. I don't want to say twice or for the hundredth time how much you've taken from us. I think you know that. I hope you go to God with all of the guilt, all the bad things you may have done in the past. And if you are truly sorry, I speak for myself. I forgive you. If you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. He actually asked the judge if it was possible to hug the woman who killed his brother. And he did it. Forgiveness only makes sense if you know what love is and if you know what sin is. Brant was very clear about Amber's sin. He said, you have taken much from us. You took away a son and a brother and a friend. That is the truth. And he didn't shy away from it. And Brant showed love. He said, I forgive you. That is unbelievable, unfathomable, Christ-like love. That is true forgiveness. Let's pray the Lord's Prayer together this morning. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.